hi, and welcome to the first episode of Token Points, where we explore creating value in a tokenized world. My name is Gianni Galerta. My co-host is Adam B. Levine, and our featured guest for today is Austin Griffith. Hope you enjoy the show. As a first show, being that we're going to be talking about tokens and particularly about non-fungible tokens and all the interesting things that are happening on Ethereum, that we bring in uh, someone that's really been doing some interesting projects. And I've been following him for some time and found them through his first through his game. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I won't let you do that. Some of the hackathons he's done and some of the kind of really cutting edge stuff that he's been putting together uh, with some of these ideas that are being kind of talked about in the different conferences. He's actually implementing some of these things. I'm gonna hand it off to him. Maybe he gives us a little bit of a background of how he started with Ethereum and a little bit of his journey and then talk about the game to start. The, well, the game is pronounced Galias. <laughs> it's, it's an old type of warship. So the game is based kind of loosely, there's a lot of anachronisms in it, but it's based loosely in the 14th, 15th century. And it's kind of like, it's about sailing and stuff. So just normal blockchain stuff. I guess I got started about a year ago, a little more than that. And the first thing I noticed, like as I started building stuff is we needed oracles. So I tried to build a decentralized oracle and I got the mechanics working behind it. But we know now there's a, a lot more that goes into kind of the networking and the crypto economics behind staking and and getting a decentralized consensus together that uh, a first-time blockchain developer is not going to be able to understand and that that kind of paved the way for me because i built a lot of tooling around setting up that oracle system so then i went into building games and i i loved building the games and i still go back to it now and then when i need a refresher and i you know i'm i'm too deep in the space and i want to build something cool i go back to this kind of like this is my craft, this this hand-painted game that I love so much. And then ETH Denver rolled around and I built a Pogs game. I don't know if you're, uh, if you, you have to be the right age to know what Pogs are, but I built a Pogs game, which are perfect for NFTs, right? Collectibles yes. with, with gaming involved, right? And, and so you- Oh yeah, it's it, yeah exactly. It's a very simple game, and you you basically can uh, own these pogs, and you have true ownership of them, right? It's all on chain, and then there's a there's a game based around it where we use commit reveal to do randomness on chain, where like the slammer goes down and some pogs flip over, and the person who flips them over owns the pogs, and that was fun too. And I, I built a couple other projects uh, in in that space leading up to the summer, but what I really realized is onboarding just wasn't where it needed to be. Anybody who wanted to play my game had to go, you know, go through the on-ramps of buying Ethereum, right? So so let's say I, I sell you on the game, I get you into the game, I've, I've correctly uh, sold you on the, the vision or whatever, and you get in and you're ready to play, and you don't have any Ethereum. <laughs> and so you've got you've got to wait days to get Ethereum. You've got to send your social security number and your driver's license. And then finally you have Ethereum and then you need to go get MetaMask and you need yep. to learn what a seed phrase is. So I realized that onboarding uh, could use a lot of work. And what I started playing around with is well, like, how can we pay the gas for, for other people's transactions, right? So, so I'm incentivized to onboard someone by basically they don't even know they're on the blockchain, but they're playing my game. How do I do that? And I found that I could generate ephemeral accounts in the browser. Someone would have an Ethereum account that basically just lives in the memory of their, their browser. And so they're, that's just a public private key pair. They're signing these transactions. Those transactions are coming to a, an off-chain layer that then uh, submits them to to uh, an identity proxy that recovers it, proves it's them cryptographically, and then submits it, and I pay the gas for it. And and actually, their transaction goes back to my game, and they have a ship that's sailing around, and, and we're doing all of that for them. And that's sort of kind of what I've built up to with all the meta transaction stuff that uh, is is probably what we'll talk about more of, but that's probably a good intro so far. <laughs> that's the tooling you made for that. It's meta tax or meta meta tx. Yeah, yeah, meta tx. The technology you created to make that happen in this game, right? Yes, exactly. Yep. So meta tx is kind of uh, a threefold demo of of how you do so part one was basically just a bouncer proxy it's like an identity proxy that you deploy an identity proxy you charge it up with tokens and ethereum and then you have like these etherless accounts that basically live on your phone so so you generate a public private key pair on your phone that uh key pair that private key never leaves your phone 
and then you use that to sign transactions. You never have any ETH on that phone too, in case you lose that phone. Like you, there's nothing really other than the phone that's lost, but you can, you can whitelist those accounts. Then your phone is making these transactions. And this, this was all, this is like universal logins from Alex Van de Zandt, right? Like he, he pioneered all this stuff. And I still get goosebumps when I watch that original Ethereum uh, magicians video of him talking about universal logins. But basically you have a phone that doesn't have any ether that hasn't moved private keys around, right? You've done it the right way. You're signing transactions there and you're sending it to this bouncer proxy that that then sees that you're whitelisted. It cryptographically recovers the fact that it's you, you're good to go and then and then transacts on your behalf. So I could say like, I I want to send you to ETH, right? And I sign that with my phone and I ship it to the to the layer. The layer submits it to the the contract. The contract executes it, says, oh, he wants to send two, and it's him. I can prove that with math mm-hmm. and and does the transaction. Then part two was token subscriptions, and that was how basically uh the the Gitcoin guys were like, hey, can you kind of keep we're, we're trying to get token subscriptions going. We're trying to get a subscription system set up. And and they were um they were approaching it through the Gnosis wallet. Like the Gnosis wallet is just a beautiful, just gorgeous set of contracts, but it's quite complex, right? And they were trying yes. to build a module for it. And I think that we still will. But when I got into it, it was like a it was a Saturday and I got in there. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just this is so complicated. I'm I'm not even it's gonna take me weeks to get up to speed on this. And I went to bed kind of defeated. And then uh, I kind of like woke up at 2 a.m. and I was like, wait a minute, we can do this in a really simple way. And and there's like these two tricks. There's the meta transaction trick with a recurring nonce. And we can kind of talk about that. But basically like a nonce is, is keeping you from replay. And we actually want to do a replay. So, so it's like a replay trick. Like a, we actually replay the transaction. And then we use the ERC-20 standards to control the flow. You can pause by just approving zero or approving 10. So uh, there's like those two tricks in combination. 40 lines in a smart contract, you've got token subscriptions. Came up with this from a dream? Like you just woke I, up I and all, just woke all, up. all that was there? Basically, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like all, all this stuff has been, like I didn't yeah. invent any of this stuff, right? Like everybody else, you can you can look at my bouncer proxy. I have all these like notes and links. Basically, everyone just handed me all the technology. I just duct taped it together and it worked, right? <laughs> yeah, and and then I think the, that's what, what's needed sometimes is like... Uh, People coming at it at a different at a different level, you know. You 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 know. You mentioned that you were there, kind of figuring this out in the past year, and so you're looking at things in a different way. And there's a lot of other you know articles and writing and and shows and you know uh, cats and videos that people have put together that allows you to think of it in a different way. And maybe you got that eureka moment that that helped you do that. Let me ask you a question, like. You know, there's people that probably may may hear this down the line, and and I've struggled to kind of uh, here in Miami finding people that are engineers to to work on projects and whatnot. What is what is your background before the year that you started playing with Solidity and Ethereum contracts? Like, what do you think enabled you to become someone that was able to kind of pick it up in in a relatively short time? Like, what's your background professionally that gave you the tools to, to help you with this? Yeah, so I, I have a master's in electrical engineering. So, and I haven't basically used that at all since college. <laughs> I did I did that to make my dad proud. <laughs> and then I moved on to things like uh, a lot of computer science stuff. Like, uh, I, I lived for a while off of, like, um, casual... Facebook games. I built like a horse racing game on Facebook, right? And that that paid the bills for a while. But uh, yes, casual casual gaming. So yeah, it's like I I built a lot of like browser based games and kind of that was my introduction to the space. And now I work at a marketing company and uh, we have a lot of developers and I've built a piece of software that kind of lives on top of Docker that allows them to kind of orchestrate uh, microsurface architecture with just hitting buttons, right? They don't have to worry about all the inner details of Docker. They can just say, I want a service that needs to be PHP and stand up a database and a cache and kind of do that with clicks and then deploy that uh, to a fleet or a staging environment. Yeah. So then then I started like messing with smart contracts and it was just, it's it's such a beautiful sort of goosebumps moment when that first transaction goes through and you're like, holy crap, that just worked. And there's not a third party. Like I just signed a piece of, of, information and I sent it out to anybody publicly and that actually like moved money and and then it's like well what else can we do with that and then smart contracts and all the the cool things you can do with that and then that led to like building games 
and then that led farther into this about onboarding and meta transactions and stuff. That's awesome. Well, thank you for kind of sharing that because I think you know some people don't talk about those those little details and and I don't think people realize you know to the extent of how difficult it is to kind of build some of these things and having you have to have a good background, a good engineering background, a good computer science background to kind of do the important things, you know, the stuff that's necessary to kind of build some of these things. So the other thing I wanted to mention in the in the ship game, Galias, right? I mean, there's I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't, I, I don't I even know. know. <laughs> but but there's an interesting thing with that game that you can you can also not only have the the tokens, but you can also have uh, the ERC twenties, right, as kind of resources. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and something that I haven't seen other people do because you can, you can, and by the way, I think my ship, does the ship keep on running if you get it going? Because I know I put, yep. put a little fishing rod down there. Hopefully I catch <laughs> some, some stuff. There, but there's actually a couple like really cool uh, things you're talking about here, like mechanics within the game. Yeah. So, so first of all, crafting, right? You're talking about ERC 20. So, so there are land tiles and the land tiles can be like a forest or uh, whatever, and that forest basically generates timber. If you if you you know cut down the timber, that's another transaction on chain, right? You cut down some timber, then that timber uh, basically you own it just like an ERC twenty token. I could send it to you on an exchange if it happened to work that way, right? It sticks to the standards, but then that uh, timber goes into a contract for the ships, right? So to, to construct a ship, to build a boat to sail. You basically send the timber into the boat contract, and then that generates an NFT that is like a ship that has metadata about the speed and and the durability of the ship. And then that ship basically is like an NFT that you own, and it could be traded just like any other NFT. But then what you do is you send that ship to a smart contract, which which represents the sea, right? And so then then the smart contract owns that ship. And it, it does it on your behalf. So you basically put the ship in the water and then you send another transaction to the smart contract that says, put up my sales, right? So you put up your sales and now this is, this is really neat. You're sailing on the blockchain. Basically for, <laughs> for each block that is mined, your ship moves whatever the metadata says is its speed. So it's gonna move maybe 15, 20 pixels each time a block is mined. So if you, yes. get, on, if you get on Galleas, you can see the ships moving and, and you can see all these different people are on there. And those are all just diff different people in a very decentralized way right like the the front end you can pull the front end down on uh github and start playing the game right there's no back end the back end is ethereum and what's cool about that is also sorry i keep hijacking the, yeah, the conversation no, no, it's super cool. I'm just, <laughs> it's like it's deployed to ipfs so each time i do a code push not not only is is your ship owned by you right this is this is kind of the power of of ownership here I can't take that ship away from you but also as soon as i deploy my code i deploy my code to ipfs where it's decentralized right so each deployment of my code is a new iteration almost like a fork on a currency right if you liked the game three versions ago you can go play that version of the game on ipfs so each time i deploy a new version it's like a new fork of the game and you can go play it there too so really neat like when i started realizing like holy crap this is this stuff is really cool and I, you know That's i'm just awesome. building a silly little game but there's this neat technology that kind of comes along with it that's amazing. I'm going to pass it to Adam in a second. But the interesting thing is that I had heard a episode and I should have taken note of what the episode number was. I do have it recorded somewhere because it's an important episode to me. But he was interviewing uh, Lord British, who was the creator of Ultima Online. And this was before Ethereum. He, you know, he was talking about resources and and using blockchain to do interesting things where, you know, you go into a dungeon. It's not the same randomization that would happen when you go into a dungeon, get a sword, you know. That there's some there's some other mechanisms that would allow for these resources to be revealed and then to go back into the the system. But I'm gonna pass it to Adam. Maybe you can talk about that show and maybe how it relates to gaming the way that Austin's mentioning. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Yeah, Austin, uh, really interesting projects. I have a bunch of questions actually, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's let's start with. Okay, so I'm gonna take us back a little bit. Sure. Um, you are building games, or you have built games that are basically entirely on the blockchain. And this is a conversation we were having a little bit before we started recording. And I was talking about how that was something that I tried to do, and I've seen a lot of other people try to do, back before we were really talking about smart contracts, back when we were mostly just talking about sort of token ownership and, and using them as game pieces. And the problem that pretty much all of those projects have or are in the process of running into is that these is that the blockchains don't scale yet. And in a situation where blockchains don't scale, like it's really cool to use a blockchain, 
And there are things that a blockchain can empower a game to do that you can't do without it, but it puts all sorts of barriers in the way. And you mentioned them during, uh, I believe when you were talking about the Pogs game, that the real problem isn't anything to do with the blockchain. It's to do with the fact that nobody has Ethereum and you need Ethereum in order to do this. And so you went down, it sounds like a quite similar path, a different direction, but a similar path towards trying to solve that problem where you wound up basically just absorbing the cost. Uh, Austin, thanks very much for that kind of overview of your projects and your journey through the space. I think that, um, you know, you've learned a lot in the last year and you've done a lot. And I think that, you know, the um, approach of taking on hackathon challenges and doing, you know, sort of proof of concepts over the course of a weekend or two weeks, something like that. Uh, I think that's absolutely the right approach to take in the current environment. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. Bunch of questions. Let's start off by talking about games. In a generic sense, your, your kind of background comes from gaming side, you know, casual type games. And it seems like you're building games that are roughly analogous, maybe a little bit more detailed. And then, of course, there's the blockchain side, right? But the games themselves seem like they're of the same type of scope um, as what you were working on before. Is that an accurate characterization? And what would you kind of, can you talk about the differences in building a game in the traditional way versus building a game that's really kind of blockchain oriented? For sure, yeah. So I grew up like with like Age of Empires was one of my most favorite games and it's very much like a resource management kind of game. That that kind of um, like Settlers of Catan is a board game kind of, that kind of like resource management type of game is something that I really enjoy playing. So it was something that I wanted to build also. And it, it, that's so perfect for blockchain, right? Like when, when you're building a blockchain specific game, you, you need to, don't, don't try to do things the old way, right? Like find the, the things about a blockchain that make it unique and use that for, for your game, right? And so like tokens are perfect for this, right? The, you have these ERC-20s and the, these ERC-721s and, and there's like the users own the things and, and kind of like going back to the IPFS deployments, like everything is... The, the, with, with my horse racing game, people would get really mad when I would deploy an update, right? And if, mm. if you want to go back to the old game, like each update is its own iteration and fork. And if you want to go Ethereum Classic on it, like go ahead, like it's, it's out there. So, so the, the fact that it lives on the blockchain is, is this really powerful thing where you, you have to kind of build your game around the blockchain and, and really like use the blockchain to enhance your, your game and, and build it in a way where it's okay if it takes 15 seconds or 45 seconds for a transaction to go through. Like you, you need to be able to build that user interface. And so there's a lot of challenges that come along with that, but there's a lot of power in also having the, these, these tokens be owned by users. I, I kind of danced around. I don't know if I answered it specifically. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you answered, uh, you know, what are some of the reasons why you would want to do it and kind of okay. what's the general tactic? So uh, we've been having a conversation recently on my other show. On episode 375, um, we talked about how uh, when you're talking about something like money, there's a real argument in favor of wanting something that's fully permissionless and decentralized. But as projects move away from that money use case, the reasons to do it kind of become a lot less because money is valuable unto itself, right? Money, like the marker itself is the part that's valuable because it's money. But when you talk about something like a crypto kitty, is it actually valuable if there's no image that is associated with it? Is it actually valuable if they're like, if the underlying game that supports it is no longer able to do it? And I see what you've done here with a game like Galias as really trying to get away from all of that. But, but you were, and so to, to do that, you've used IPFS. And I think that's a very interesting uh, approach to it. Um, IPFS itself is not distributed at this point. So you're probably still running those servers, but in theory, as IPFS grows, then people could operate this and you wouldn't have to do that. And so in theory, if, some, if you decide to stop developing this in six months, and someone wants to keep operating it, then they would be able to do that. And people who were operating on your version of the game would still be able to use exactly the same thing because the ownership itself is characterized in the blockchain. That's really what you're doing here. Yep, for sure. And I think that going back to, I, I think that the, the ownership of the token too, like I can't take away your ship either. Not only, not only is the code out there and free and deployed and, and I don't think I even built any ownership into those contracts. So I probably can't destroy it if I wanted to, right? I can't take away your tokens. You own everything. So one thing that I've really been thinking about a lot uh, over the last, I'd say, year is whether or not we're going to see these types of token systems actually deploy within big companies. Because companies like Blizzard or Valve 
already effectively have most of the benefit that you would get from introducing a blockchain except they control all of it and it's their ecosystem, right? So really, it seems like the type of work that you're doing is the sort of thing that's going to catch on, on the, in the indie space where you want that collaboration and where you kind of lack that, that network right now. But if everybody could use ERC-20 tokens or everybody could use some other types of token standards and there would be interoperability between those, I mean, it seems like you, seem that as a, you see that as a good thing. So can you kind of talk, talk to us a little bit more about how you view building almost collaborative games in, in this type of space or, or how you think that'll develop? Well, I mean, it, first of all, it's all open source, right? Anybody can put a pull request in to make a ship move faster or fix a piece or, or even like, so I set up, so in Galleas, one of the, the initial mechanics is you, you craft this uh, dogger. It's like a fishing boat, right? And you send that fishing boat out uh, into the water and you actually like cast a line out and reel in and that's a commit reveal scheme for randomness and based on that randomness you catch a fish or not right then that fish is an erc20 token that can be sold for copper and all, you know all the game mechanics but uh, one thing i wanted to do and this is going back again to uh alex van de Zandt from the universal login stuff he talked about what it took to make a good game and probably bullet point seven on that list was embracing bots so i I used Gitcoin to incentivize someone to build a phishing bot that would actually like talk to my smart contracts. It, it would craft a ship, it would sail to where the, the fish was, it would cast out, each of these being transactions uh, against the contract, it would reel in the fish, then it would sail over to the fishmonger and it would sell the fish. And basically what he built was, was a copper miner, right? Because this thing would just run and it would mine, it would spend a little bit of Ethereum and gas and it would, it would collect these copper tokens. And that was just some dude, like I, I went to bed and woke up and he had built this thing. And so the, the power of that, that collaboration is so cool. It and, really cool. you know, I, I would love to have more people working on the game, but it's, it's still kind of in, in early phases. So I don't have that much collaboration, but the power and the ability is there for someone to do that. So on the money side of this question, um, we've increasingly seen smart contracts, which put controls and different types of schemes into the smart contract, which allows them to make upgrades, freeze balances many times. Um, I saw one yesterday that's um, for the uh, new PAX uh, dollar peg token which actually has explicitly defined law enforcement uh, private keys within it and controls that allow them to freeze or to do other types of things actually directly with the smart contract. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's that oh, centralization. Oh, oh, right. right, right. Okay, so, so yes, I, that's right. Okay, so yes, that's centralization. That's, why, the other that's side why you lost your thought because it was like, eh. <laughs> well, okay, so yes, it's centralization, but at the same time, um, it's also control which allows you as the person who's actually operating the game or that hopes to make money from it or that just hopes to have a business can, that can actually be self-sustaining in the event that there is an error somewhere in your code. Yes, on the one hand, it introduces uh, you know, additional vulnerabilities, additional ways that your contract can be attacked. But I mean, do you not see a problem if something goes horribly, horribly wrong with, with your work and not actually having any, I mean, like what's, what's the balance there in terms of it's valuable to be able to fix this stuff while on the other hand, you don't want control. So yeah, absolutely. Like while you're still iterating, while you're in the testnet, even while you're on the main network, you should have the ability to, for a while, upgrade the contracts. And I have that right in Galleas. Basically, the main contract is just an index of all the other contracts. So, so when I want to redeploy like the copper contract, if I wanted to put some some new mechanic in there so I could do like a transfer and send, which which I did do that. I basically just redeploy the copper and then change that index to the new copper address. And that's centralized, right? If I have the control to shut all that stuff down, that's kind of bad in some ways. So what's the end game? I mean, like, obviously <laughs> there's an end game here you have in mind. Well, so I'm not making any money. The, the point of this is for the love of it, right? I, I love Galleas. I love working on it. When I pull it up and I see it and I start playing with it, I just get, you know, that, that warm feeling of doing something neat, right? So, so there's no money gain in this for me. And there's nothing like, flowing from you know accounts to me i'm not making any money off of it so so to, to answer the, the question about like what like is this a bad idea i think that for other people they're going to have games and they're going to move a lot of money through it and they're going to make money off of it but uh for me i'm just kind of learning and okay so let me lead the uh let me lead the question a little bit more than i did um it seems like the way you described that you know you're working on it now and you have a lot of different smart contracts which perform different functions within the game 
do you see yourself finalizing certain contracts and removing those as features Absolutely. become battle tested? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that we should all do that. Right. Like once it's out there and it's, it's like my pogs game, I'm pretty sure I can't control it. I'm pretty sure I can't stop it. If I wanted to, I could tear down the front end, but those contracts are out there and there's commit reveal randomness and there could probably be some kind of gambling angle disputed there. Right. And I don't know if I can shut it off. So there's, it's kind of scary. Right. So I don't want to, you know, I think the good news for you about all of this is that the way that that things look like they go is that if you have the ability to do something and you are required by law to do it, then you have the responsibility to do that something. Uh, but if you don't have the ability to do it, then you don't necessarily have the responsibility because it's impossible. So I think so yeah. long as you stay on the right side of fraud, you should be okay relatively. <laughs> well, um, I'm not making any money here. <laughs> I know, right? That's the thing is it's like, it's all about the fundraising. It's not, it's never about the projects. It's always about the fundraising that always creates the right. problem at this point. So let's talk about um, the actual mechanics of uh, Gallius a little bit more because I think that's really fascinating. So really what this is, is a bundle of different smart contracts, which perform different functions and which all operate together. And basically the entire game is actually using... Uh, these, these smart contracts and is actually using on blockchain transactions in order to do all of this. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, Everything is transaction. Okay. So uh, let's just assume that the intention here is not to make money and you, you know, you're, you're doing this for the reasons that you've said. Um, this is obviously super uneconomical um, to do this sort of thing. And you <laughs> yes, talked earlier in, <laughs> at the very beginning about um, kind of the concept of meta transactions. And I want to examine that a little bit because I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, one of the arguments that Gianni and I have had about uh, non-fungible tokens, which is what NFT stands for. I didn't know that before a couple of weeks ago. Um, we used to just call them tokens. <laughs> um, yeah. Gianni and I have argued a number of times about uh, whether or not it actually makes sense to use smart contracts for kind of all of these different things and whether or not this is just sort of building things that are proof of concepts now, but as soon as they get any sort of use, it actually winds up crippling you know, entire networks. And this is not a problem restricted to Ethereum. This is a problem that is any sort of blockchain out there that isn't using some form of delegated or some, some form of proof of stake in order to do that. So let's talk about meta transactions. Can you just go over that again for me real quick? I wanna make sure I understood what you said. How, how do these things work? Word, okay. So, so. Uh, first of all, one of the scalability things is is like these layer two technologies where you're you can you can use that 1970s public private key pair technology to sign things to prove that someone signed it right and that's that's kind of the the base layer of like state channels and and all of these kind of layer two things is basically stuff happens off chain they get signed. And then that, that off-chain stuff gets submitted on-chain and then it's recovered. And, and the recovery basically takes the, the message and the signature and proves that someone cryptographically signed that. And then that means that message is valid and, and signed by that, that uh, address, right? Mm -hmm. so, so a meta transaction just kind of uses that. It, it takes, it takes this, the structure of a normal transaction that would be submitted to Ethereum and it crafts that up and you sign that off chain and then you push that to a secondary layer that then pushes it on chain and pays the gas for you. Okay, and, so let me, let me, let okay. me here, okay. So when we're talking about making these transactions on chain, what, what you're talking about is this is the delegated system on the mm -hmm. back end, right? Is that these users don't actually own any of these tokens at all. They're all being held in what is effectively an escrow address. And then at the point that, and so they, they technically control some of the assets that's held in a single escrow address or, you know, multiples, but, but every user doesn't have their own escrow address, right? You have. They the can. Address. No. So, oh, so can. in the, in the beginning, like when, when someone is first onboarded, I'll, I'll have them transact through my onboarding contract where I'm, I'm just paying the gas for them. I, I want them to get in. I want them to go sailing. I want them to go fishing. I want them to be like, wow, this, this is cool. Like, right. So we, we initially will pay for users to interact through our contract to basically start providing value within the DAP, right? You should be able to click in from Twitter and immediately provide value within the DAP. But once you start, like, say it's like a song service, right? You post a couple songs up, people like that, a couple tokens flow your way. Now, now you have some incentive to have a wallet, but you also have some value. And you can now use that value to deploy your own identity contract and charge that up with your own code tokens and interact through that, right? So then, then that kind of brings up the, the, the hot and cold wallet talk where basically you take your cold wallet, some kind of good storage that has value, and 
you deploy that contract and then you send some value to that contract and then you sign your hot wallet, like your phone, basically something that doesn't have any ETH in it and also doesn't have like private keys moving around, basically just a, a key pair. And then you can use that phone to interact through your identity uh, using these meta transactions. I remember talking with uh, Alan Reiner about this like three or four years ago um, as an extension that was coming for Armory. And I don't think it ever hit Armory. But yeah, the idea that you could kind of have like one home wallet and then have remote controls that are elsewhere. So, okay. So then I'm a user. I go fishing. I, I make a bunch of fish. I sell those for copper. That turns into something that's actually valuable. Now I have value within the system. Am I deploying the meta transaction smart contract? Yeah, you could, right? Like, so there's okay. a lot of different ways to do this, but you certainly could deploy one on your own and then interact through that. Okay. And, and it's yours. You own it. Okay. And so when I interact through that, I'm within your game, I'm saying, uh, you know, spend five copper on this, spend 10 copper on that. And at the end of the day or whenever meta transaction actually winds up pushing this, then it pushes that as the three transactions add up to 15 total. It pushes it as one transaction for 15 going to you, right? Uh, do they actually, can they go different places? I don't think I've totally followed that. Okay, so um, if I'm using meta transaction in order to sum together multiple transactions, do I are they all being sent to the same place? And it was just tracking balance updates on my side or can I have some get sent to you, some get sent to Gianni and it still just uses one transaction? Got it. Okay, so it, it, now we're talking about batching transactions, but yes. it's to totally doable. You can batch those into a single byte array and then ship that, but that does get, that ships to your identity proxy. Your identity proxy recovers. Okay, we're, getting too, we're getting too complicated for me again. What did okay. I get wrong okay. about that? Just walk me through no, the no, correct you, way then. Yeah. You, you got it. it. It goes to that contract. The contract unwraps it, but then the contract makes the act, actual execution. So like, so the, the, the transaction that happens to cast your line out I see. is done by the identity contract. The identity contract is saying, oh, you signed this thing that says go fishing. I'm going to go fishing for you. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's less about um, so it's less about transfers and it's more about actions. Is, well, it, anything, it, right? Any 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 transaction with a it it could easily be I'm sending you tokens or or even there's there's this really cool stuff you can do delegate call, which uh -huh. basically you can execute a function on the contract that actually exists in the contract's memory. So so I could from my phone tell my contract to go upgrade itself which is like super weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you, Austin, this, this, is from a, this is from that talk from, from Berlin, right? There was like this idea of the executable identities. That's, this is, all this spawned from that, that lecture, right? That happened. Uh, at ETH Berlin? Yes. No, Not ETH Berlin, there was something before that. Oh, from, from yeah, the, yeah. the from the speaker you were mentioning before, which I forget how to. Uh, Alex, right? Alex Van Zandt, yes. right? Yeah. So yes. all all the way back to even ETH magicians, he was talking about universal logins, and and it's delegated execution. It's sort of like you have this identity, and you charge that identity up with these tokens, and then you whitelist your phone to then send meta transactions to your identity. Your identity says, "Oh, it's you. I can prove that you were the one that sent this. Now I'm going to do these transactions on your." behalf basically a contract is exactly like a normal user right it's just an address and that address can transact with the blockchain just the same so the contract is acting as you and doing these transactions whether that means sending tokens or hitting a smart contract or anything like that okay so meta transaction I think <laughs> is more about convenience and reducing the number of interactions that a user has to actually have with the smart contract or with their wallet directly rather than it is trying to achieve cost saving. Yes. I think it actually costs more, right? It costs okay. a little bit more gas to do okay. that recovery process. That's what I do okay. a little that, bit that makes more sense to me than yeah. what I was thinking. I that's had it in my head that this was a cost savings way where you were aggregating transactions and that's why I was confusing in the earlier part of the conversation. And, and yes, you were right about all that stuff. And and there's kind of this new thing about these replayable meta transactions. So once I sign a single meta transaction, I can replay that and, and we can get into that if you want. But basically a, a normal transaction uh, on Ethereum basically has a nonce. And that nonce says, this is, this is transaction number 25. So, so if I say I'm gonna send Gianni to ETH, right? 
and I'm going to say, this is going to be my 25th transaction. And I sign all of that information. I put it on Ethereum, right? If someone wanted to like, basically that, that signed transaction is public and everybody has it. Right. So what's to keep someone from like continuously submitting that same transaction, sending it to Johnny over and over again. Well, it's that nonce that nonce is actually stored uh, on chain and it's incremented with each new transaction. So it breaks the hash. If, if I try to resubmit, nonce number 25 it's it's not going to be valid because we've already submitted nonce 25 so this is where the trick comes in with the meta transaction is basically instead of having a replay nonce you have a replayable nonce so instead of having a number we actually have a timestamp and the timestamp says this transaction is valid every month right we have a number of seconds and the, the smart contract recovers it, but it also does this check to see, is this transaction valid in terms of timestamp? Time so then we have these recurring transactions where I can sign a thing that says, I wanna send 10 bucks to Gianni once a month. And then that becomes valid again and again, and that, re that network can replay it, right? Mm -hmm. And th this is really cool stuff. So then this, this is where you came up with the ETH subscriptions idea. Yes, yep. And so basically with, with, that, with that replay nonce trick, along with the ERC-20 standards of approval, so instead of just doing a transfer from, you can do uh, an approve. So within the token standard, it says, yes, you can move funds, but someone can actually move funds on your behalf if you approve them to do so. So that kind of sounds like trust, right? You're trusting a third party account, but not if that account is a verified public smart contract that you can see the code and you know exactly how it's going to execute. So there's this contract, this identity that we're kind of talking about that, that will uh, be public and be out there on chain, available for anybody to use. They can see the code, they can trust the code, the code's been audited, kind of not yet, but we're working on it. The code, right, well, let's just say it's been audited. Uh, and then basically they can sign this transaction that people can submit to this contract over and over again. And then they can use these, these standards and they can, make, they can make a transaction to the, say the die stable coin contract that says, I approve this contract to move funds on my behalf. And then they sign a transaction that can be submitted over and over again to that contract. And then there's even, this is cool too, there's a reward inside of the meta transaction that says whoever submits this is going to receive a little bit of this token also, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you incentivize this layer of peer-to-peer -peer meta transaction desktop miners to submit this for you. So you've signed one transaction and you've approved some upper bound and you walk away. And this thing is going to run indefinitely and it's crypto economically backed. Have you thought of any other use cases for this uh, for this kind of replayable uh, transaction? No, uh, I I I think of a lot of things, but I don't know if any of them are useful. We'll see. <laughs> so I want to understand the replayable transactions a little bit Where? more. So you said that the nonce, which is generally a, a random number that increments up, that's only used once. That's what nonce mm -hmm. uh, generally stands for: number used only once. So you're saying that instead of using a number used only once, you're using a date and time, which can reoccur. So yep, is exactly. Is the, is the transaction replayable only on that date and time? Yeah, explain to me how that part of it works. I'm not understanding how using that as the nonce somehow prevents someone from just replaying this over and over again. First of all, I love talking about this stuff. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. This is really neat stuff. But uh, so normally that nonce is stored uh, on chain, right? So if, if I had a token, I would have a nonce for you that says you, you've interacted like uh, your, it was like interaction number 25, right? And that's stored on chain. Well, instead of storing a number on chain, I'm going to store the last time you interacted, right? And then in your, in, in your meta transaction, you've signed that you want this to happen monthly. So you're not signing a date time, you're, you're signing a period. So then once you interact once, we store the fact that you interacted, right? And so then if you were to try to submit that again, I would say, well, no, you interacted five minutes ago. You're not valid yet. Because I, what I would do is I would take the last time you interacted and I would add that period to it and see where we are now. And if it becomes valid, then it, it can be resubmitted again. So token subscriptions are more along the lines of, I mean, they, they do require trust. They do require trust on behalf of the person who is submitting it because you are the one who's doing this additional protocol layer checking, right? It's not actually happening at the contract layer. It's happening at your layer. And you're saying this has been an insufficient amount of time. It's not like a blockchain is going to reject it, is it? 
Yes, the blockchain does reject it. Yes, okay, the so trust, I'm still not understanding. Trust, no, it's going. totally fine. No, ask away. So the trust is in the contract. There's about 40 or 50 lines in this contract, and that's what you have to trust. And on top of that, so now you're talking about this layer. This layer is valuable, right? Like what if someone doesn't submit the transaction? And that's where the crypto economics come in. Go ahead. Go, yeah. go, go. Okay, so I, I, I keep thinking about these things as web services, right? I keep thinking about okay. these things as, as things where like there's a server that's operating this logic, which can then, then control these smart contracts. But what you're saying is that this is actually built in as an additional smart contract based layer. And so the smart contract itself is in control of this, so under normal conditions, if we were talking about a web service, you would have to trust the web service, but because it's using a smart contract, the smart contract is auditable and the smart contract just operates according to the way that it's written. So there actually is no additional trust outside of the fact that the smart contract is doing what it says that it's going to do and that there aren't any sort of compromises. And that's so the trust that's repetitive. The, the trust layers are here. You've, you've got to trust public-private cryptography which I think we can trust. If that falls apart, a whole lot of stuff is going to break, right? The second thing you have to trust is the logic within the contract. Is the code correct? If the code is correct, the code is law and it's going to execute exactly how you want it to. The third thing you have to trust is the crypto economics of the system. Someone, now literally anyone with ETH can submit these meta transactions. So if, if it's a subscription system and you're subscribing to me, I can go submit those. We don't even need the secondary layer. I can go submit those every month for you. And I basically, I can turn them in. Anyone can turn them in. You pay the gas and you submit this meta transaction. Anyone can do that. And then they're rewarded with the token. But I'm incentivized to do that. If, if, if it's a subscription to me and Gianni's buying me a beer once a month, I'm incentivized to just go submit that, right? But if I'm a large service and I have thousands of those things, it doesn't make sense for me to go in and do a MetaMask transaction for each one of those, which is where the secondary layer comes in. And that's the third piece of trust is you have to trust the crypto economics of it. And that's the reward token. So Gianni's gonna buy me a beer, he's gonna send me 10 bucks a month, but he's also gonna send 50 cents to whoever submits the transaction and it's valid, right? So then you have to trust that layer also. But I mean, you, you can always trust people to get in and try to make money, right? Like the, the, the economics, if the economics are sound and the cryptography is sound and the smart contract is sound, this thing runs decentralized. And well, I mean, it's just like if taking Adam's point of like, it's like spinning up a server and running a cron job, you know, you have to make that thing go. You got to pay the server. You got to pay for the bandwidth. You got to pay for these things to kind of go. But it's you kind of initiating and you trusting your own cron job. But it's not kind of like, this is almost like a decentralized cron job in a sense where, you know, you kind of incentivize people to run the action for you. And I appreciate Adam kind of bringing it into those terms because the thing that happens in crypto and, and in blockchain is that when you go deep, your context kind of like widens to a point where you start talking stuff that even people that have been in it for a while, you know, they can't fathom some of these thoughts or ideas. And so it's kind of, it's good to kind of relate it to some common stuff that either existing engineers that have not come into blockchain can start kind of relating to but this makes a lot more sense kind of like thinking of it in those in those terms and and i think this is what this these conversations will be good uh me being completely with some kind of programming knowledge and being more a business marketing person adam being really deep into this and kind of working out some of these problems and you kind of being in this kind of engineering uh, uh computer science and computer engineering uh, actually working out the problems. It's, it's a good kind of conversation to kind of dismantle this in such a way that many people can understand. So and like disclaimer, I am not a genius. Like I, no, I I'm not like saying that I'm you are smart enough. I'm smart enough to like, pretty smart though. explain it in a, in a, like if I can't figure it out and explain it in a way that someone can figure it out, then I need to do a better job of understanding it. Right. Of course. And so that other people can start using the technology and, you know, you're almost like you're not getting any monetization out of it or, or not, but you're, you're getting the fulfillment that the, the, the work that you're doing is going to be utilized by other people. For and sure. I think that's the, the powerful thing. Now, obviously, we've been, we've been at it for an hour, but I kind of wanted to go maybe kind of twist this with the, the conversation of, you know, you were talking about Galias and, you know, you're not getting any money from building that or, or you have any aspirations for that. But you can obviously can, you kind of set the stage in the sense where you're saying, it can continue being worked on and new versions, you know, can remain and uh, older versions can remain, new versions can, can, can live on. And the subscription model and all this other stuff, it's like, you know, maybe you can talk towards the idea of ETH grants and Gitcoin uh, and that kind of build 
you know, the hash mark. The, Be- beetle is how they I think they, they pronounce it. Beetle. I just say build, beetle. but beetle. Yeah, it's <laughs> like it's the build culture is like just building, right. you know, so keep right. building. And I think good things will come. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. So, uh, so with, with Gitcoin, uh, maybe we should just talk about how Gitcoin, basically uh, a GitHub repo is public, right? Basically everything we're doing in the space right now is public code. Anybody can see the code. Anybody can, can uh, you know, fork it, make some changes and then submit a pull request. So along with that are uh, issues. You can put an issue and say, boy, it would be cool if we could center this div or whatever. You know, it's like any, any kind of code change that could be put into it, you can, you can make an issue. And then behind that issue, you can go to Gitcoin and you can incentivize some uh, third party developer, just like the, the phishing bot we talked about. Like you can incentivize someone to get on there. So then the next step there is like, well, what if you want this recurring thing? Like what if we wanted someone to kind of work on a long-term project, but we wanted to kind of incentivize them or pay them along the way, right? And that's uh, where the grant system comes. So, so Gitcoin is working on this dev grant system and they kind of asked me to, you know, can, can we make a grant system? And I said, well, we, we, we figured out token subscriptions. So we took a team to the Wyoming Hackathon and we won that, what, two weeks ago? And then I got the, the team back together and we built uh, ethgrants.com, which is basically uh, kind of a web 2.0 solution on top of the web 3.0 token subscription system. And you can get in and you can write up like, hey, I would like a grant to do this. And I think there, there's actually a grant on there to buy Austin a beer, but you can get in there and you, you unlock your MetaMask, you put it on the main net, you, you look at the possible grants that are there and then you decide to fund them on a monthly recurring basis with DAI or, or any number of different tokens, including wrapped ether. And uh, then that will, just like the token subscriptions, on a recurring basis, pay that person those tokens. So then, then that's where like you can create kind of like this, this system of incentivizing someone to continue uh, working on something. It's, I think it's a really interesting idea. It works really well, by the way. I did. I think I. I think I put some money to buy you a beer. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and and it was interesting because I also got to explore a little bit of the die, you know, aspect of the stablecoin, and you know, seeing the utility of that now. You know, if if I if I were to give you some die, then you know that you know it's five bucks worth of uh, of uh, of that. You know, it's not going to fluctuate to the point when you want to buy your beer that you only have two bucks to buy it with. Subscriptions are a very good use for the stablecoin. And that was another prize we won at the hackathon was the make or die stablecoin. What better than long running subscriptions? It's, it is a, it's a really fantastic idea. And I, and I think there's, there's a lot more that can be done with that to, to maybe kind of shift the idea of how to build some of these projects and how to keep this ecosystem going without this kind of unscrupulous uh, need to, you know, here's this cockamamie idea and we kind of write a cockamamie white paper and uh, we're going to raise some crazy amount of money. And then, you know, they have nothing to prove for it or whatnot. And I think any project that would kind of adopt some, you know, either restrained ICO type functioning, like, like traditional, like a small seed round or a pre-seed round or whatever, or this kind of like, you know, I'm going to build this and I'm going to prove it and I'm going to keep on getting paid as I continue building on this, you know, it'll incentivize other people to kind of contribute because uh, in smaller chunks, you know, not like this grandiose thing where you can't even fathom the size of something and the scope of, of what it takes. Some projects may need that, but Whatnot. But I thought it was really interesting and I thought that uh, I think it's a really good use of the previous technology. It seems that your projects are almost kind of their blocks on themselves because one builds on the, on the next and you keep on iterating your thought process to build these interesting little proofs of concepts. So it's really, really interesting. So um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pass it back to Adam to continue talking about the scalability aspects. Sure. Quickly with regards to ICOs and stuff, people are always opportunists. That's really what it comes down to is that if there's the opportunity to raise money, people are going to use it. And in an environment where things are kind of legally uncertain, then what you wind up with is people who are willing to take legal risks in exchange for raising that money are the people who raise money. So I think that this is a problem that by this time next year should be mostly shaken out, but it'll be shaken out because instead of, because the people who have had the ability to raise stupid amounts of money are no longer going to have the ability to raise stupid amounts of money. And that's of course, the irony about ICOs in general is that ICOs have been viewed as this really empowering new type of technology, but it turns out the more you look into it that it actually has nothing to do with the technology and it has everything to do with the rules that are surrounding how you can legally raise funds. And people thought that they could ignore it with these things, but now that's pretty much going to the wayside, right? Uh, in the future, what we're seeing are things that are securitized token offerings on the one side that are just like traditional equity sales. 
And on the other side, you're seeing presently defined ICOs, projects that don't claim anything other than what they are right now. And if they're selling you something, they're selling it there. I hope what we see from that is projects that raise reasonable amounts of money. Because yes. that's the problem. The problem isn't that projects are raising money, right? It's that they're raising crazy amounts of money and that the people who are raising that money tend to be more on the opportunistic side of things, what we've seen so far because of those dynamics. Yep. So, but it is definitely, if you have the ability to, it's such a luxury to be able to just work on a project, right? And not have to worry about the monetization of it and just be able to experiment and explore. And that's really how I got my start with all this stuff too. And I very much uh, think that that's uh, a very valuable path forward for learning quickly, as you clearly have through all of this. So with that in mind, you know, the biggest problem in cryptocurrency uh, outside of the fact that nobody has it um, <laughs> is also a big problem. But the, the biggest problem that we can solve through technical methods in cryptocurrency is this idea of scaling. And uh, this is not a new problem. We are not the first people to bring this up. This is a probably the best known problem in cryptocurrency right now. It's not restricted to Ethereum. It affects basically everything until you get down to the hardcore proof of stake areas where there are other trade-offs that come with that uh, better scalability. Um, you know, a project like this, if Ethereum is successful, I was just uh, starting up a, a Gallius uh, uh, account. Um, and I noticed that it's going to cost me 30 cents to send uh, my first transaction. Um, to actually do anything within that. And I imagine that I should be expecting to spend probably, you know, five, $10 in transaction fees if I play this for a little bit of time. Um, so talk to me about that. Uh, clearly, this, the intention here is not for this to be economical, but how do you see this shaking out? Are you just waiting for scaling solutions to, to come in on kind of the main chain? Or are you thinking about uh, strap-on solutions or layers on top? So yeah, at, at first, I definitely was like, they'll figure it out, right? I, I'm building a stupid pogs game or a stupid ships game the 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 scalability like i i cannot talk to you about the intricacies of sharding or casper or or any of those solutions on ethereum i i'm assuming they're kind of what they sound like they're sharding they're you know side chains and stuff like that and i, I don't really know that much about those but when i when i first built uh cryptogs is probably a better example my pogs game the, uh, the entire game of Pogs is on-chain, and everything you do is a transaction that costs gas, right? So, so even, even setting up a game, like I put my Pogs on the table, transaction, 40 cents. You put your Pogs on the table, transaction, 40 cents. And also not just money, but time, right? This is taking 15 to 45 seconds, right? Uh, I accept your Pogs for 50 cents, right? I throw my slammer 50 cents, right? And so this, this really adds up and it takes forever. It takes, you know, 10 bucks and 15 minutes to play a game of pods. It's just, that, that's performance art. That's not, that's not, a, <laughs> that's not a tool. Yeah. That's not something that people can use, right? So uh, I, I realized right away that I could trade a little bit of centralization away for, for usability, right? So then I created a database and said, instead of you putting your pogs on the table in a smart contract, let's just, you put them, you sign them, right? With a public private key pair and you put them into a database and we display them to everyone. And so at least like the, the, the off, the, there's a lot of stuff we can do off chain ahead of this. And so you can do some things around your usability that, that means that we could still use the public private key pairs. We can still use cryptography to prove things, but it doesn't all have to be in the smart contract right up until the point where the, the game is generated and we do the, the commit reveal scheme. I turned, I turned the whole game into, I think, two or three transactions instead of 15 or 20, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, there's, there's a responsibility on both sides, right? The network does need to scale. We need to figure out something so crypto kitties can't choke the network. And, and in terms of the, the geniuses behind the lower level stuff, I can't speak to that, but I can speak to what it's like to be a DAP developer. And it's our job also, right? That it's our responsibility to figure out ways where we can do some of this stuff off chain too. And I think this is where this, this EC recover and, and um, state channels and meta transactions, like all of this stuff is up to us to kind of, you know, can I, can I do this in a way where it's only one transaction? And, and I really have to think about it and come up with a clever solution to make the game work still still with with the power of the blockchain but in a in a clever way where maybe we're just signing transactions back and forth we're not on chain yet mm -hmm. we get to a point where that state is then written to chain now and then right and that's kind of like this this kind of side chain idea so so there's kind of like the two aspects there's it, it's up to the network to figure out how to handle it better and it's also up to the developers on the dApps to make their app more clever about how it handles that stuff 
So as time has gone on, um, you know, the meta transactions thing, uh, I mean, it seems like this is, like I said, not about scaling. It's about um, kind of solving some ease of use problems that emerge from people who aren't that sophisticated when it comes to using this stuff. So fundamentally, to interact with the game, every user has to have on-chain transactions, right? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, in, in terms of like the power of the game is like the right. ownership, right? The, 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 the account needs to own the stuff and right. I can, I can interact with the thing on your behalf. You can say, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to tell my ship to put up the sails and start sailing. And I could say, okay, like I'll do that for you. I'll pay the gas. Somehow, somehow there's this whitelisted account or maybe you sign stump something and that gets recovered like a meta transaction. But in the long run, it still should be your account that owns that, right? That's the power of all this is this like self-sovereign identity yeah. and, and tokens. Uh, the, I guess the, my only other question is um, outside of kind of the cryptocurrency community, have you done um, much or any uh, sort of usability testing or gotten any feedback on this sort of thing? Because that was an assumption that I had for a really long time that um, on-chain stuff fundamentally mattered because that was the point of the game. And over time, I've really come to think about these projects as being more like they're token-backed, where you have an economic system that is defined by the token characteristics. But if you look at it from that perspective, then you don't need to go through the challenge of onboarding all users into cryptocurrency in order to have them as users. And I'm just curious, is that the direction you suspect it will go as well? Or yeah, yeah I, I think that... Uh uh, Matt Condon, I think, talks about minimum viable decentralization or something like yeah. that. It's kind of exactly what you're talking about. Like, what do we actually need to have on chain? And what is on chain just as performance art? And and can we get rid of that, right? And so, so I mean, my games are kind of just like proving that you can do it. There's not really a ton of reason you need to be sailing on the blockchain, right? That's well, I mean, but let's be clear. Like, I've looked at a pretty decent number of games out there. And as far as the actual number of things that you're doing on the blockchain, the ways that you're using Using it. You're, you're using a lot of transactions, no question about that, but you're actually doing it for reasons that kind of make sense to use a smart contract for, mm -hmm. which is not always the case when you're looking at this sort of project. Right. So, I mean, like, so regardless of your own intentions, it's really more a question of, like, in order for this stuff to be viable, I have kind of, you know, walked away from the idea that everything is going to happen on chain. And it seems like you're maybe halfway there, but you're still keeping all of the important stuff for all of the people on the blockchain, whereas I've largely abstracted that in my thinking to so long as the system's backed, then that gets us the vast majority of what we need without a lot of the usability inconveniences. Do you, I mean, that, that's basically the question. Where do you think yeah. we're going with this? Where, where are viable games going to come from? Well, I think that uh, this, this, what you're talking about, about does it need to be on chain and does it not need to be on chain and how do you make a game that's sort of half, uh, it, it reminds me of the Decentraland guys. So they have like this world, this 3D world, and uh, they were on the Gitcoin chat the other day and I was talking with them and I said, well, what controls where the person is? Like, how do you know if a person, you know, goes into this building and, and they click some button in this building, how do you know that person's really there? There's no way you're tracking their location on chain. And they're not, right? Like the location of that is stored in, in a server, in a centralized server, but the interaction with that button, they say, okay, our, our centralized server says that they're in the right place to be able to hit this button. Now they're hitting this button and that's a transaction, right? Where, whereas with Galias, it's like all back. So like you set sail and it's all controlled on chain. So, so to know that you're at a specific island, it can verify that in the smart contract. It can say, you set sail from this location and it's been this many blocks and you're traveling at this speed, we can like verify on chain that your ship is in this location. That's not really necessary, right? Like, I mean, it's cool. It's a cool use of the technology, but do we really need to know that that ship is in that exact spot? And does that really need to be backed by a smart contract that can hold hundreds of millions of dollars? Or can we centralize some of this stuff and just like you're saying, have the stuff that's important, the minimum viable decentralization. Can we have the very important pieces like maybe the token or the identity ownership can we have that on chain and then have this layer around it that sort of is still web 2.0 and, and, and a lot of the familiar technologies that we have? Okay, I, I like that direction. Um, and I have one more question and then I'll hand it back to you, Johnny. So uh, one of the other um, proposals, not generic, I mean, like that, that has been proposed lots of times, right? And which we see some projects doing is taking their own instance of a blockchain like Ethereum 
and just having their own version that is a blockchain. And this is sometimes proposed as a temporary step because eventually we'll fix the hard problems in scaling and be able to move everything back into one chain. Or on the other hand, some people are saying there's not actually a reason to not have a blockchain that is just doing game stuff, right? Um, and so I, what, what, what do you think about that? Should games, you know, assume we solve scaling, should they be on the main blockchains out there or should we have more game-specific ecosystems that can be game specific. I think it, it comes down to the app, right? Do, do, you, do you really need to track that that ship is in a specific location, right? And, and that comes down to whether or not there's a hundred million dollars on the fact that I just like sailed to this castle and I'm trying to sure. put, put a stone there, right? Like, right? like it comes down to the money probably. And I think that Johnny can probably talk about Loom and some other sidechain stuff that, that it's really powerful and, and really perfect for games. And you know, the a game doesn't really need to be on the blockchain a lot of times. And so then these side chains can be really powerful because they can, they can sync up with the main chain after a long state has changed. Right. And do you want to talk about that, Gianni? Yeah. Just a disclaimer. I do own loom by the way, and I do own a, a ship on Gallia. So if for whatever reason, a ship in Gallias, and this is a, it's, it's fascinating because you start kind of going down the rabbit holes in your brain, but if at any point the game becomes something where you may want to have the ship that has traversed the most the most blocks of the blockchain space, and somebody decides to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, the longer you've been at sea, the more of something you get, you know. The extensibility and the narrative behind the token is yeah, so that's beautiful. important to have known where that ship was and that's been <laughs> out at sea for so long, and it still survived or whatever. There's so many interesting things that come from it. But yeah, with the Loom guys, I mean, there was something when they, they first had their kind of like their first write-ups and whatnot. And, and it's really pertinent to me because very long ago when I, I, when I was working for Alienware, I worked with everybody in the team, the creative team. We all started playing Star Wars Galaxies. We love Star Wars Galaxies. We love the crafting aspects of Star Wars Galaxies and played it quite a bit. I actually built a character and sold my character to to one of the executives friends so that he could play at the same level as him i made my my subscription money back by by selling him the character and that always you know it always stuck with me that they, some something profound about that aspect the other thing that is profound to me on just using star wars galaxies as an example is that the developers trying to appease everybody they did something to the game where everybody want, that wanted to become a jedi became a jedi and completely ruined the game in a sense and What's happened is the game died, World of Warcraft came online and everybody started playing that, but there are still people playing Star Wars Galaxies. People are actually purchasing the actual media from eBay and running their own servers and continuing the game. And it's similar to what you were talking about, how if somebody wanted to play this fork of my game and continue down that path and continue building it from there, they could. It's not to say that you know we have hundreds of game developers that are just building stuff to continue working on it but there is enough need sometimes in some games that if the developer goes a path that they, they don't like uh, or they can diverge from it and create something new such as league of legends for example uh, or these types of you know or dota let's say that were offshoots of the strategy game of world of warcraft with heroes it was a custom game that created those games it was an emergent type of new type of game that, that came out of it. So I think there's not enough people that realize that we may be coming into a new type of gaming that has not even been, that we cannot even fathom yet. There's an emergence that's going to, I think, going to happen with this ability to continue building or integrating. And uh, I know, for example, there's been some conversations, some people have talked about how, you know, uh, just because you build a non-fungible token game or a game where you own the assets, that there's no real reason for someone to someone else to build on top of it uh, or to extend it or to do something, you know, put a hat on a crypto kitty or give them some armor for them to fight. And you have a new game when I can easily create those assets and create my own kitty and just do my own thing. But I think the power is that if Galias is doing a fantastic job and has an audience and is doing a great job in, in building, continuing to build the game, if I did something to extend the game, to be more interesting, like make Galias 3D or make Galias have some other type of functionality, then we can all contribute to the success of both games working at the same 
same time. So for me, I, th I think it's really interesting. I, you know, I really enjoy this idea of gaming, the blockchain space. And I think because you went down that path, you realize that gaming needs to be easy for that people to enjoy it, for people to kind of come in by the masses, which is what everybody wants. You know, Adam and I and everybody that was back in 2013, 2014, people before that, you know, we're trying to buy stuff, you know, we're trying to use it for, for petty things. Uh, but it wasn't there. It's, it's somewhat difficult, not easy to use. In real now life, it's still not there. <laughs> it's not there. It's still yeah. not there. But the fact of the matter is that gaming, I think, is the conduit that's going to get more people on. And it's going to get them on quicker because someone that plays a game may be more technically astute and will have the facility to say, I can download it. I can get some ether. I can download MetaMask and I can figure this out because everybody can figure these things out anyways. So that's, you know, so I'm, I'm just, you know, I just wanted to give a little rant on why I think this is so important and so exciting, because regardless of it being scalable or not, these things are working out by creating games that are really meant for people to utilize and to make it easy for them to utilize. You're going down paths that other people have not gone down, right? Because they're, they're trying, they have other motives and your motives are to make things fun and easy to use. So, I, I mean, I appreciate this first episode. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was enjoyable and, and, and I hope you had a good time, Austin, with, you know, talking with us and, and being the first uh, contestant of, no, sorry, the first guest of, uh, of uh, Token Points. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I think uh, that last piece that you're talking about, about the extensibility, like anybody can take my contract. We can, we can create a new token, like a potato coin that you could plant in my game and it can grow. Anybody can also run it locally. Just like you said, you could check it out from GitHub and play the game like on Ganache on your local and it's fast, right? Blocks are mined immediately. So anybody can take it, anybody can use it, anybody can extend it. And I think that's very powerful. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. It's awesome. Thanks to be on. Talk to you guys later.